incentives. They seem pretty simple, right? If you want someone to do something, you should incentivize them. Pay them some money or give them a reward. But here's the thing. It is not always that easy. To explain, I've got a fairly obscure story for you. It is a story about fossil recovery from 200 years ago. See, back in the 19th century, paleontologists in China wanted to find more fossils. They were short on staff, so they decided to recruit local peasants to help them find fossils at a dig site. They incentivized the peasants by paying a reward per fossil fragment submitted. This is the conventional thinking. Incentivize people with pay and they will work harder. They'll gather more fossil fragments. And that's exactly what happened. The team received thousands of fossil fragments, much, much more than what they were expecting. But not because the peasants worked harder. Instead, the peasants smashed the fossils they found and divided one fossil into 10 or 20 different fragments. And by doing so, they could 10x or 20x their rewards. Now, this significantly increased their earnings, but of course, it decreased the scientific value of the artefacts. All too often, incentives fail in this fashion. They aim to motivate, but ultimately, they encourage the wrong actions. And in today's episode with Uri Ganesi, the incentive expert and author of Mixed Signals, he'll explain why this happens and how to create incentives that actually work. All of that coming up after this quick break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. So today we are looking at incentives. We'll cover what makes a good incentive and what makes a bad one. But first up, it's worth getting a description of exactly what an incentive is. And who better to ask than globally renowned expert on the topic, Uri Ganesi. Here he is describing incentives to me. The incentive is something that will make you do, take an activity, buy a product, whatever, that you wouldn't do otherwise. So if I wouldn't have the incentive, I wouldn't do the activity, I have the incentives, I'm, I will do it. I will likely, more likely to do it. That's my very narrow general definition. We can find places in which it doesn't work, but as a working definition, I think that's good. And like I said, it doesn't have to be money. It could be social status. It could be a promotion. It could be whatever you think about the care about that falls into this category. So this is a nice, simple explanation. An incentive makes you do something that you wouldn't do otherwise. But that thing you decide to do after receiving the incentive, well, it isn't always the thing you were supposed to do. Like the Chinese peasants, many incentives are badly designed, leading people to take actions that they weren't intended to do. Uri's seen a lot of bad incentives in his time, and he shared some of the very worst with me. If you want to look at the way cities look, so in the 16th, 17th century, they wanted to introduce some kind of progressive tax, and they decided to uh, to charge people according to how many, how many windows they have in their homes, right? So you look at the windows and you count them, and the richer you are, the more windows you have, so you can pay higher tax. 
And then you got people to start blocking the windows to go around Europe in many places, including London, where, where you are. You'll see houses with old houses where the windows are blocked. You can see that there was a window over there, but now it's blocked. And that's why, why it happened, because people pay taxes based on how many windows they have. And funny enough, today, if you want to show signal that you are rich, you can, I don't know, buy a Rolex or I don't know, there are many ways to do it. Back then, it was to build a home with lots of windows. If you if you did that, you could signal, look, I can pay, the, I can afford the tax, right? So that's an example of the incentive. So taxes are also incentives, I think. The window tax of 1696 was aimed at collecting higher taxes from the wealthy, but it backfired, ultimately encouraging thousands of Brits to block up their windows. And it was eventually abolished in 1851 after years of complaints from the lack of windows creating environments in which disease could run rampant. Yet these bricked up windows, they're still visible today throughout London. And the window tax, well, it isn't the only example of bad incentives shaping the architecture that we see today. Take Amsterdam's canals and the houses on those canals. Have you ever wondered why all the houses in Amsterdam, and in fact throughout the Netherlands, are so narrow? Well, it's partly down to bad tax incentives. Most of the land in the Netherlands is naturally soft soil. So houses, especially those near the canals, they needed large load-bearing stakes in the ground. To cut costs, many citizens would reduce the length of these stakes, which made for a much cheaper house, yet a much less stable house. This resulted in many leaning houses and many more collapsed houses. So, in an attempt to fix the problem, the government mandated that only sanctioned officials from the government could install those stakes. And to cover the cost of these officials, the government introduced a tax. The tax was based on the width of the house, because the wider the house, the more stakes required. So suddenly, overnight, wide houses were taxed higher. The result, of course, is the beautiful compromise that we see today. The vast majority of Dutch houses are stunning, yet skinny, built to be as thin, yet as tall as possible, to maximise on space, but minimise on cost. Occasionally, you might spot a wide house and you would know why. It was a chance for very wealthy individuals to signal their wealth. Bad tax incentives have shaped houses in Holland and covered windows in London, but neither of these incentives are quite as bad as the next example Uri shared. Another one that I really like is from Vietnam. So the French were in Hanoi controlling it and the governor, we're talking about early 20th century, the government decided to introduce toilets. So with this came sewage, with sewage came rats, and it became a problem in Hanoi. First, they tried to hire some people to kill the rats, but that's uh, that was too difficult. So then they decided to outsource it. Let's give people the that you know people can kill the rats. And the way they decided to incentivize them is that they had a poor guy at the city hall that his job was to count you know, rat tails. So people would come with him with rat tails. And for every tail, they got, I don't know, a dollar, whatever the the amount was back then. So that that way, the the governor thought that, you know, people will kill the the rats themselves and everything will be good. It turns out that people were, like in many other cases, people learned how to game the the system. So first of all, they started to see lots of uh, tailless rats running around the city because why do you need to kill the rat? Just cut the tail and let the... 
let the rat go around and do his business. So have more uh, baby rats, right? They started to have rat farms and many other things like that, which were clearly uh, counterproductive. That's not what the government wanted. The Vietnamese rats are one of many examples Uri has of poorly thought through government incentives. Uh, another one he shares in the book comes from the old Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, state glass production factories once paid managers and employees on the basis of the weight of the glass they produced. This incentive encouraged workers to do the wrong thing. Rather than create more glass, they instead produced glass that was exceedingly heavy, because that's what they were paid on. And this led to the point where most of the glass was almost opaque because it was so thick and heavy. The government leaders recognised this and they tried to fix it. So they simply traded the incentive based on the weight out for an incentive based on the size. They switched to paying based on the square metres of glass produced. This new incentive solved the heavy glass problem, but created an entirely different problem. The glass production became so thin that the windows often shattered while being transported or installed. Incentives, it seems, can be very tricky to master. These are examples across the globe of poor incentives, and these are from seemingly intelligent national governments. God knows how many bad incentives there are wrecking havoc across private businesses today. So, what is the solution? How can we ensure we're creating the right incentives? People are really creative at gaming incentives. So whenever you introduce incentives, you first need to do some kind of A-B testing to, to see what's going to happen. Right? Especially online, it's very easy. Just uh, see what happens when you introduce incentives to a small group of people, compare them to a control that doesn't get the incentive, and see how people, how creative people are in gaming the system until you find something that it works. Like Uri says, these A-B tests are easiest online, but they're possible in real-world settings as well. Take this 2015 study by Johnson, Riley and Munoz on Chilean bus drivers. They wanted to see how different types of salaries would change how the bus drivers drove. How did they do this? Well, they did it with a simple A-B test. They took some of the drivers and paid them an hourly wage, and they paid the other drivers based on how many passengers they carried during their shift. So some drivers being paid on a standard hourly wage, the others are being paid basically a commission on how many passengers they manage to get onto their bus during the shift. And these two different types of payment, these two different types of incentives, encouraged very different behaviours. The hourly paid drivers had no incentive to look for a fast route. They drove slowly yet safely, and but this meant that they didn't offer a very efficient service. They weren't rushing from place to place to make sure as many customers were getting on as possible. And this was very different from the drivers that were paid by the number of passengers they had on board. They acted very differently. They drove faster. They looked for faster routes. They spent way more time on the road and took far fewer breaks. But this faster service came at a cost. They were also involved in a greater number of accidents. And the passengers reported a less pleasant riding experience. This is why A-B tests are so important. They can help you see the consequences of your incentive. The Chilean transport department might think twice about incentivizing drivers by passenger load. Sure, it increases the efficiency, but it also increases accidents. Without an A-B test, it would be very hard to spot this. So far, we've covered heaps of bad incentive examples and not many good ones. These are funny to hear about, but not useful for those of you who are looking to create an incentive yourself. So I asked Uri, what's an example of a good incentive? And he said, airline miles. One that I really like is uh, miles that airlines introduced. Why is that so brilliant? So I fly a lot uh, for work and uh, 
in San Diego, there is a big hub of United, so I fly United usually, and I try to fly with them because of loyalty. Now, imagine that I have to fly to London, for example, and I can fly with British Airways, say, for $1,000 or with United for $2,000. If I had to pay for, for it, of course, I'll choose British. I'll fly for $1,000, but not, uh, I don't want to throw away money. But if, like in many other cases, like many business people, someone else is paying for the flight, I'm not that sensitive to the cost. I prefer to fly United because I get a, a higher status over there. If I have a problem, they can they can help me faster. Maybe then they 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 help people with lower status on there because who fly less. So in this case, I would fly with uh, with United if someone else is paying for it. And what what happens basically is that the airlines were able to incentivize to give the benefit to one person and let another person pay for it. So the company is paying for the incentive that the person receives. They think that that's a great, uh, you know, it's not economically efficient maybe, but it's uh, from their perspective, from the airline's perspective, it works really well. Almost all major airlines offer frequent flyer incentive programs. For every mile flown, customers earn points. But like Uri says, the genius part of this incentive is that the person who makes the flight choice enjoys the loyalty program benefits rather than the person who actually buys the ticket. In his book, Uri calls this a major rule of incentive design. He says, know who pays for the product and who enjoys the incentives. Keep in mind that the two may be different. Soft play areas might think that incentivizing children with free to watch Disney movies is a really smart choice because the kids will love it. But the children aren't paying. It's the parents. Instead, a soft play area with a licensed bar and free drink tokens for parents will probably end up being the most popular play area in the city. Getting incentives right can influence motivation and consumer behaviour. In fact, Uri is convinced that a bad incentive is one of the main reasons why Blockbuster failed. Hear why after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show. You are listening to Nudge with me, Phil Agnew. So Uri's convinced that Blockbuster failed due to bad incentives. He also reckons that I might be too young to know about Blockbuster. I know he's wrong about one of those things. So take a listen to hear his take on Blockbuster. So the story, I don't know if you remember, you're not, maybe you're not old enough to remember the, the good old days when Blockbuster was everywhere. And the way they made money was really on the late fees. And that was very annoying. You forgot uh, to return a, 
a movie for a week and you really got hammered. And I think that the, the biggest, let's start with the general uh, takeaway from this. When I, when I consult with companies, I notice that the companies that really need help are not the ones that are in trouble. If your company is in trouble, you are already thinking, you're shooting everywhere, you're trying the best you can to, to improve it. If your company is doing well, then you're not trying it because you think, okay, everything is good. Of course, it's some companies do, but in, in general, that's what you see. If the company is doing really well, you don't start to question yourself. Is that the right thing to do? You, the attribution is, oh, we are great. We are the best. That's why we win. It's not, oh, we were here first. We are here from the 70s, 80s, whatever, but the world is changing. You, you don't notice this and, and you really lose. And uh, they, you know, the Netflix model basically looked at this and said, look, that's that's a wrong way. You are annoying people. You, they annoyed the, you know, the, the founder of, of Netflix. So they basically said, look, let's look for a different model. And he went first to Blockbuster and offered them to, to buy him, basically to take him. So the model was, uh, again, to the younger audience, the, the, the model was let's send DVDs home to people. They can keep it for as long as they want. Once they send it back, we'll send it the next one. So no late fees. Everything is transparent. Everything is out there. You don't have to worry. And Blockbuster's reaction was, who are you? Why are we talking to you? Why are you wasting our time? And then when they woke up, it was too late because Netflix was too big for them. And then, of course, came streaming, but that's uh, that's later. But the idea is really that if you're really successful, look look aside. Don't be so sure of yourself. Successful, and try not to base your uh, your business model on uh, punishing people. That's uh, once people will have another option, they're going to leave you very fast. A bad incentive or penalty can be capitalized on by a competitor. For Blockbuster, these late fees they were really profitable. At its prime, Blockbuster was collecting eight hundred million dollars in late fees each year, and was collecting them from sixty-five million different customers. But unsurprisingly, many customers got frustrated. One customer, Reed Hastings, got so angry after being charged a $40 late fee that he started his own movie rental company with no late fees. That company was Netflix. And we all know how that story turned out. Turns out Netflix isn't alone in building better incentives to fuel their growth. Yuri says the same is true for Uber. So think about two taxi drivers. One of them is paid per hour. These taxi drivers, you know, will drive very slowly and very safely and be polite to the passengers. Everything will be okay. Think of the other company that pays them per passenger that they take. So like they're independent. This, uh, this driver will be on the positive side, will be much more efficient, will think strategically where they should be, uh, what time to go out. Everything that they can do, they'll try to do in a strategic way to earn more money. But they're going to drive less safely. They'll be, they'll be more aggressive, maybe, or something like that. Because now you're you're uh, rewarding them, you're incentivizing them based on quantity, right? So you can tell them that you care about quality, but if you incentivize them best based on quantity, it's not going to work. That's that's what they're going to think about. And what you mentioned about Uber and uh, Lyft and other rideshare companies, what they were able to do is to add another dimension of incentives. So their model is like the second driver that is paid per passenger, but with a very important distinction. They uh, also have 
uh, the ratings that you give the driver. So if I drive with someone and that uh, driver will not be will not drive safely or will not be polite, the car will not be clean, I'm going to give that driver a low rating. I'll give the driver one, say, and that's going to be to be hurtful for the driver in the long run. So the ride-share companies were smart enough to introduce another layer of incentives that cost them nothing and get them to have the good of both worlds. So the Uber driver drives more safely and has to think strategically where to, to locate. Right? And I don't know about your experience, but almost universally, I prefer the rides with Uber than with the taxi. The, the Uber experience is just much nicer. And I think that because of that, I've fallen into the trap of underestimating incentives, of thinking they were simple. I thought to encourage action, you just needed to pay someone. But we've heard today how that can backfire, how it can encourage the wrong actions, or perhaps encourage a customer to pick a competitor. The best example of an incentive-shifting behaviour, however, doesn't come from a world-leading company or a national government policy. It comes from a small Israeli daycare centre. Here's Uri sharing what I think is the most well-known study on incentives. It's his study on the perils of charging late fees for daycare parents. So uh, it was a long time ago. My girls that are now women, they're 27 and 29, they were kids in a daycare back then. And we lived in a suburb of Tel Aviv at the time. It was nice for families, but not good for restaurants. So for lunch, my wife and I used to go to Tel Aviv to have lunch. And then we had to pick up the girls by 4 p.m. from the date. So I remember that once we were late, I drove like crazy because you need to pick up your kids by 4 p.m. That's that's what you need to do. Then the, the principal introduced a $3 fine for parents who came 10 minutes late. Again, we were in Tel Aviv, again, traffic jam. This time I didn't drive like crazy because I'm not going to risk my life for $3, right? It doesn't make any sense. Right, and that was uh, Aldo Stokini, my co-author, and I started to think about this before, and that was a great example of this, where when the fine is introduced, you actually change the meaning. Before that, I didn't know how bad it is to be late. Maybe the, the principal doesn't care, or maybe she is really upset with me. I didn't know. There was uh, incomplete information. Now, I know exactly how, how much is $3 med. That's not that much, right? So I can I can be late, pay the fine, everything is okay. It gave me the, gave me the the right to be late. Now you can think about it also as babysitting services. I'm paying three dollars for babysitting services. But then we had so we ran the experiment. We had some bakers that for control, and we had some bakers in which we introduced the fine. And then after ten weeks, we stopped the fine. So if the explanation was, I feel okay to be late because it's uh, it's painful babysitting, then there should be a drop in the treatment back to the to the level of control. But that's not what we found. We found that they stayed at the same level, which means that it's really about the information. I learned that it's not that bad to be late. You know, we call the paper a fine is a price. Basically, you put a price on on how bad it is. It's only three dollar. I'm I'm happy to do this, and. You can think about uh, other places where it's, um, you know, some places in the U.S. it's ten dollar a minute. Then you'll be on time, right? If I could execute parents who come late, everyone will be on time, right? So the, the important thing in the in the example that I gave was that the fine was relatively small, but uh, it was enough to really change the culture, to change it from a culture in which you should be there on time to a culture in which, well, 
it's a cost-benefit analysis. It's a different kind of analysis. In general, incentives have this tendency to change the way we think about the situation. So imagine that you go to France for dinner tonight. And usually you bring a bottle of wine that costs, I don't know, $25. Today you'll be busy, whatever you want to have time, so you'll show up and give them $25 in cash. That's going to be very awkward, right? Because you're signaling to them that the kind of relationship that you have is kind of, it's called in the psychology literature, exchange relationship in which you give me services, I give you money. And instead of having what's called communal relationship in which we are we are part of the friend, right? We're friends with each other. So to reiterate, inspired by this experience, Aldo Rostini and Uri, they designed a field experiment to test the effect of fines for late parent pickups in daycare centers. They got 10 different daycare centers in their study, and all of these daycare centers didn't have a fine for late pickups at the time. So there were no fines for late parents at these centers. And for the first four weeks, they simply recorded the number of late pickups in each. And then in six of the daycare centers, they introduced a $3 fine for the late pickups. And this was for the remaining four weeks of the study. Now, you'd think that late pickups would drop. After all, you're disincentivizing it. You are charging people for late pickups. But the opposite thing happened. The average number of parents who were late in the daycare centers where a fine was introduced actually doubled. There were two times as many late pickups as there were before. The fine originally introduced to discourage parents from being late actually promoted late pickups. So all these years on, I asked Uri, what should the daycare centers have done instead? So they couldn't charge more because they were private bakers, but there was some kind of uh, organization that told them what they can do. And you don't want to lose people, right? So if, if you charge $10 per minute, I can just take my kids to a different take, right? So uh, there is a limit. Definitely, if your goal is to reduce late coming, don't charge $3, right? So that's the, that's the first thing. If you cannot, and uh, we, have, so we have a series of papers showing it for the positive side, as well as this one for the negative side. And the, the real lesson is pay enough or don't pay at all. So either don't introduce incentives or introduce large enough incentives. Don't introduce the small incentives because that's where you find the funny, funny examples, insulting examples. So think about, uh, say that I'll go for a vacation for the weekend and I'll ask my assistant to stay over and do some job that I need to do until Monday. Then I'll show up on Monday and give him $10. He'll be insulted by that, right? He'll, be, he'll feel bad. So if I'll give him chocolate, that will be okay. If I'll give him $10, he'll be insulted because basically I'm telling him your weekend is worth $10, extra $10. If I'll give him $10,000, he'll be very happy. Right? So it's really, it's not just the fact that I pay you, but how much I pay. Right? That's, uh, that's also very important. So in the example with the wine, if you go to visit your friends for uh, dinner tonight and you'll give them a million dollars instead of a bottle of wine, they're not going to be insulted. I think. Or if you want to be my friend and give me a million dollars, I'll take it, right? But it's really the $25 we're insulted. It's clear that incentives are complex things, far more complex than I had assumed before talking to Uri. Most incentives backfire because they don't consider all the variables and most ignore human psychology. As Uri says, the solution is A-B tests. Test your incentive out in a controlled environment to really see if it works. If you want to try an incentive with your sales team, try it with one department or for one quarter before rolling it out. 
If you want to add a late payment penalty, test different penalty sizes to make sure you're picking the right one. Incentives aren't guaranteed to work, and URI's got many examples where they backfire. So if you're not sure, it's probably best to steer clear of incentives rather than embracing them blindly. Now, to learn much, much more about incentives, you should definitely pick up a copy of URI's book, Mixed Signals. There is a link to it in the show notes, and it is easily the best book I've read on the subject, so do go and check it out. If you've enjoyed today's show, please do subscribe to Nudge wherever you listen and do please drop us a review as well. If you do, I promise not to financially incentivize you. After all, that'll probably backfire, leaving me with some irrelevant reviews and probably a few one-star reviews as well. So if you do leave a review, thank you, but there is no financial reward. All right, that is all for this week, folks. Thanks again for listening. As always, I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and I will be back next week with another episode of Nudge. Cheers.